Hello again, I'm John Foley, and welcome to the latest episode of the Cloud Database Report podcast, where we discuss the exploding world of big data and the platforms and services that companies use to manage terabytes, petabytes, and even exabytes of data in the cloud. Each week, we discuss the latest developments in the cloud database market and talk to industry experts about the trends, challenges, and opportunities they see. Today's guest is Chris Gladwin, co-founder and CEO of Oceant, a technology company that specializes in management and analysis of the world's largest data sets, data sets involving trillions of rows of data. We'll get to my conversation with Chris shortly, but first a note from our sponsor, Cockroach Labs. Developers want to spend their time building cool things. CockroachDB Serverless is a new serverless database that's designed with that in mind. So you can stop worrying about the database and focus on what you're building. CockroachDB Serverless scales fast automatically and survives outages so that you don't have to worry about those things. And there's a generous free tier that makes it fast and easy for developers to experiment. Check it out at cockroachlabs.com slash cloudwars. Now onto the conversation. Oceant is a software startup that is focused on one of the biggest challenges and also one of the biggest opportunities in business technology. And that is how to manage and analyze very large data sets. Joining me today is Chris Gladwin, the co-founder and CEO of Oceant, to talk about what we sometimes refer to as big data and how Oceant's technology can help organizations gain more value and insights from petabytes and even exabytes of data. Chris, welcome to the Cloud Database Report podcast. Hey, John, really glad to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Hey, Chris, you know, uh, me too. And by the way, uh, you know, you and I have been working in parallel in the data management market for years. Uh, in yeah, fact, yeah. I wrote about one of your earlier startups, Cleversafe, nearly 15 years ago when I was a tech journalist with Information Week magazine. Uh, as I recall, Cleversafe developed um, what, uh, what we described as a dispersed storage network right. for data distribution. Uh, maybe, we, maybe you could um, just start there and, uh, and explain whether any, some, of the, some of the work there, any of the concepts there carried over to OSEANT. For sure, you know, Cleversafe was a company that was uh, a bit behind the scenes in that given how much impact it had, it had re relatively little visibility. You know, everyone today in the technology world uses either directly, you know, something that is a Cleversafe system now purchased by IBM or uses technology that was at least seriously influenced by Cleversafe, if not like defined. So what, what Cleversafe did is it made the largest data storage systems in the world, plain and simple. And what that really meant was software that would take a room full or a building full of hardware and turn it into a limitless scale storage volume. In particular, we, we pioneered object storage and how to provide the world's most reliable uh, storage uh, with an object interface using uh, a building full of standard hardware in a way that just never failed. And we ended up dominating the market for the largest data storage systems in the world in really the 100 petabyte and above category, which back then was enormous. 
you know, when IBM bought the company, we're, we weren't aware of anyone else that could do that and present that in a single volume. The, the only exception to that was YouTube. So YouTube was not something we made. Uh, that's a bespoke system designed just to be YouTube. It still is the largest data storage system in the world. And, and that was the only other one we looked at and thought, well, they, they nailed it as well. They, they figured out the namespace. They figured out how to make things reliable without making copies, et cetera. Um, but other than that, you know, CleverSafe really, really dominated that market. And that directly led to what we're doing at OSEANT. Yeah. Well, let's talk about OSEANT. Um, mm -hmm. Why don't we start with uh, just a, a, a bit of an understanding of the company and its platform. Now, uh, the way you talk about OSEANT is that it, it enables management and an and analysis of the world's largest data sets. Right. So could you kind of give us um, a sense of the company and the technology that you're developing? Yeah, so it, you know there is even just at that level, a lot of similarity with CleverSafe. At CleverSafe, we focused on the largest data storage systems in the world as measured by how much data was being stored. You know, exabytes, tens of exabytes, crazy numbers like that. At Ocean, we focus on analyzing the largest data sets in the world. And, and what we mean is not, our focus isn't how much data is stored, but how much data is analyzed. And, and one way of looking at that is in typical queries, how many records are looked at in order to respond to that query? That, that's what we mean by how big is the analysis? Like how much, how many records do you have to look at in order to respond to that query? And our focus is analysis that, consistently requires complex analysis of at least hundreds of billions of records, if not trillions or tens of trillions or hundreds of trillions. And that's, that's territory that was previously impossible. Um, you could do it before with a supercomputer if you wanted to spend half a billion or a few billion dollars to build something like that and just basically load all the data in DRAM. Um, but with few exceptions, that's just not practical. Um, and there are more and more organizations where their business requirements require analysis at that scale. And, you know, decades had gone by where it was a problem a lot of people wanted to solve, needed to solve, but just couldn't. And, and that's how OCN got started is some of the biggest data analyzing organizations in the world, which also are some of the biggest data storing organizations in the world that we knew very well at CleverSafe, um, asked us if we could solve this problem. And, you know, when, you know, that, you know, the top 10 largest data analyzing organizations in the world, when half of them ask you if you can solve this problem for them, let me tell you, you want to listen very closely, ask them every question you can to really understand what they mean. And, and, and that's really plain and simple, you know, how OSINC got started and that, that's the, the kind of problem we solve. Hey, Chris, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this conversation may may have a hard time wrapping their head around this idea of trillions of rows or trillions yeah. of, of, of records. Um, could you give us a sense of like what kinds of use cases or scenarios um, involve uh, trillions of rows? Yeah, well, one of the characteristics of trillions of something as opposed to billions, billion, you know, is billions is kind of the last scale at which humans can actually make or touch data that big. Um, it's very hard to do, but it's possible. Um, but at trillion scale, even it's just, it's just not possible. To, to give you a sense, we haven't seen a trillion scale 
data set that humans create. They can't type that fast. It just doesn't happen. And they can't even look at data at that scale. If you, if you were to take a trillion rows and print it out, it circles the earth 73 times. Like you, a human cannot look at that. It, it takes centuries to scroll that much data. Yeah, so that's amazing. So you're in this territory where before, you know, you could, you know, every once in a while, if you really had to, you could go back and actually look at the data, if it's million scale or billion scale, like in trillion scale, forget it. Like the only thing that ever touches this data are these incomprehensively powerful data analysis systems that we build. So that's, that's one of the most interesting characteristics that you see for this kind of data. And then there's also only certain ways you can have this much data. Um, and, and where those, and, and we've gotten to know what those are. So one way is um, there's 10 million auctions every second for digital ad placement in the world today, 10 million and growing. And that much data, you, you know, you want to look at a month of that or a week of that or even a day of that, you're in trillions, trillion scale for sure. So all the ad tech companies, you know, that's an area where we've had, you know, actually most of our success so far, that's the, the furthest along market where multiple customers analyzing that data. We also see it in various uh, tel telecom uh, use cases, you know, whether you know, if you're a large telco and you want to analyze all your network traffic for the purpose of troubleshooting or optimization or capacity planning or something like that, they're definitely in trillion scale. We also see it in uh, vehicle fleets. So if you got 100 billion vehicles, you know, they're, or sorry, 100 million vehicles, they're going to make this much data. Um, and, and that's another example. If you have a 100 million or more mobile phones and you know, there's billions of mobile phones on the planet. They're going to make this much data for sure. Um, so, so these are some of the areas where we, we see data at this scale. Now, Chris, some, uh, I like, uh, you know, looking back in time here, I, I sometimes point out that in 1997 in New York City, I attended an event by Microsoft that was called Scalability Day. And um, at Scalability Day, Microsoft wanted to demonstrate that Windows NT could process and manage one terabyte of data. So I always think of that as kind of a, a you know, kind of a point in time. And now next year, 2022, will be 25 years since that. And now we're talking about exabyte scale databases, right? So, so just by my back of the envelope uh, math here, we're talking about a million times as much data over 25 years. Now, you live in the world of big data. Am, am I right that that's kind of like what the business world is looking at um, is a million X over 25 years? Simply put, the answer is yes. Um, and the thing is, it's not over. You know, what we can, I, I, I've challenged people to give me an example of some new technology, some new version of something, whether it's a car, a plane, a boat, that makes less data than the version that it replaces. I mean, because I, I can think of a thousand counterexamples, like everything, buildings, planes, cars, phones, you know, radar, you know, telescopes, microscopes, they all make more data. Um, every time they get better, every time there's a new one. And and, and there's no end in sight. Um, you know, look at 5G. 5G is arguably the largest 
infrastructure, technology infrastructure investment ever. The telcos together are going to spend on the order of a trillion dollars. And that's awesome. And it's going to do all kinds of wonderful things. But it's going to create a whole lot more data, at least 10 times the amount of data for everything. You know, metadata that you analyze for security, metadata that you analyze for performance. Um, you know, like that's a, that's like the largest example of data creation ever. And it's in our future. So th th this amount of data that people are, that organizations are analyzing continues to grow. So probably over the next 25 years, everything will get a million times bigger again. Wow. Well, so that's the nature of the beast, right? Uh, this incredible amount of data. Yeah. And you made the point that businesses aren't even analyzing all of the data that they have, just some of the data sets that they have. Right. So let's talk a bit about how OSINT, um does this. Um, I, I'd like to understand the technology. Uh, you know, maybe I, I, I think we're going to have to talk a bit about the architecture yeah. and the way that OSEANT goes about um, managing the, these uh, data sets. Yeah. I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is either design for this not just big data, but hyper data scale, you either design for it or you don't. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not like you can just take an old architecture and turn it up to 11. I mean, that, that doesn't work that way because you got to turn it up to a million, you know? And so first of all, that's, that's our focus. That is exclusively our focus, you know, hundreds of billions and above records analyzed on a consistent basis using complex analysis. That's, that's all we do. And if, and if we come across a use case or an opportunity that's not a fit, we'll be the first to recommend another database. We know them pretty well. Um, so far, we haven't seen anybody else exclusively focusing at this hyperscale. And it's not just that you can put that so much data in. You have to, you have to put it in. You have to analyze it at scale. It's got to be performant. It's got to be manageable at scale. It's got to be reliable at scale and on and on and on. So either you're all in or you're not. Um, and then it, it shows up all over in the architecture. So, so one example is we've developed what we call a compute adjacent architecture where the storage and the compute are in the same tier, uh, in the same box. Um, and there's a lot, there's been a lot of awesome alternative uh, database architectures that have come out where they separate compute and storage and it creates all this elasticity. And that's great if that's the nature of your business requirements. But if the nature of your business requirements are you consistently have to analyze uh, at hyperscale and the nature of that analysis is that query has to look at 500 billion or 5 trillion things. It just has to. And if, when that happens, no caching layer is going to help you. No separate compute tier is going to help you. you. Physically, you've got to get to 5 trillion records. If you want the answer in 10 seconds, you have to look at, you know, 5 trillion divided by 10, uh, which is 500, you know, billion things um, a second. Like that's, that's, the only, that's the only way you're going to get that answer. So that's what we built is a, an architecture where we can we can literally look at things at you know trillion thing a second half you know half a trillion things a second kind of scale or more, um, and the only way to do that is to have compute and storage in the same tier, um, and you know we'll be you know for those kinds of queries we'll be a hundred times faster or something like that, um, and that's what we do and and if 
and if that's not your use case, then we'll, like I said, we'll, we'll be the first to tell you to go elsewhere. So that's one of the things we've developed is this compute adjacent architecture. And it's based on NVMe solid state drives. NVMe solid state drives is a total game changer in analysis of data. Um, spinning disk, which everyone used to use for large scale for the first 50 years of computing, can give you about 500 random reads a second. And random reads a second at the end of the day is the thing that determines how fast your database is going to go, period. Um, and and it, they do about 500. It was a mechanically limited phenomenon. You know, how fast the read-write head moves, how fast the platter spins. That was the end of the line. Right now, we're seeing for, you know, industry standard, very price performant, NVMe solid state drives, a million random 4K reads a second. A 500 to a million is not like Moore's law. It's a step change, you know. But to get that, you have to have, you know, a thousand parallel tasks in flight on that drive at, at all times with a, you know, a, a task pool sitting there to load it in. So we see, you know, typically in some of the queries we're running, a quarter million parallel tasks across the system like that's a ridiculous number that just was unheard of uh, impossible to do frankly before mvme solid state came around the only way you're going to do it is you've got an architecture that can do something like quarter million or a million parallel tasks in flight on a query and then you know coming across those pci lanes coming out of that drive like you have to have that full you know those are and, and you get so much more bandwidth out of that than if you had a network connection in between so those are just some of the examples of, of why it's just physically so much faster. And, and the other thing that's important is the price performance is at, a, is at a level that would, you know, is previously unheard of. NVMe solid state drives are in your phone. Like that's what, that's what Apple and Samsung and everybody use. It's in volume, you know, it's in your laptop. That's what, you know, so it, it not only is it this incredible new level of performance, it's at a price performance level that would that just it just completely changes the game. We we can add storage to a, an OSEANT system, you know, with like this immense level of performance at a cost equivalent to putting data on an object store, you know, with something like a million times better performance. I mean, it's 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 not just a little difference. It's it's a you know complete step change in the industry. Um, for these kind of use cases that we're talking about, hyperscale, continuous, complex queries. So that that's a little overview of our architecture. Well, that, yeah, thank you. That was a deep uh, discussion there of, of system architecture. Now, Chris, how should we think about Ocean? As um, uh, I mean, that was partly a discussion of hardware uh, design. Um, as a as a hardware company, as a software company, uh, as an engineered systems uh, platform, um, how, you know, kind of raise this up a level and, and and help me understand, you know, how to think about the the platform itself. Yeah. So Ocean is a solutions company. So what we make are use case solutions to analyze these these hyperscale data sets. Inside that solution, you know, we have built a new hyperscale data warehouse. Um, you know, and, and, and all, you know, all, everything in our solution stack is software. The reason why I talk about hardware so much though, is the, the, the design goal of great hardware, I'm sorry, great software architecture is to fully utilize the hardware. We, we call it entitlement. 
So when we run benchmarks, we instrument up all the hardware, um, you know, the PCI lanes, the NVMe solid state drives, the CPUs, the different cache levels. If, if our software is perfectly designed, all that is maxed out. And maxed out means it's about 85% full. Like we are getting every last drop out of everything in that hardware. So one of our areas of expertise is taking the most price performant hardware components on the, the planet, NVMe solid state drives, 100 gig NIC cards, high core count CPUs, not, not the really expensive ones, but the middle of the road, you know, performant ones from Intel and, and, and others and getting every last ounce of performance out of it. Cause that's where you get the most price performance. Custom built hardware, it, it just doesn't have, doesn't compare in volume. I mean, like I was saying earlier, like NVMe drives are in your, your phone. Like you're not, you know, the, the volume they get out of that is, is you can't touch that with custom built hardware. And in systems like this, you're not going to have like this one super chip that runs everything. You know, in some cases, it's a room full or a building full of hardware that's constantly changing. You know, every you know week, new hardware comes in. Every week, new hardware goes out. Like for that kind of stuff, it's it's all about you know high volume, high performance. So, tell you, that's why we talk a lot about hardware. When we run other benchmarks against alternatives, we can see like, wow, they're not really filling all the PCI lanes, and they're not really you know, using the L3 cache effectively and stuff like that, um, because it really does matter. And so one of the real skills here is how you, how you get the most out of it. And that's, that's something we, we consider ourselves to be really good at. Now you made reference to benchmarks. So uh, uh, give me an idea of what the benchmarks tell us. Well, generally what we, what the benchmarks tell us is that architectures that are designed to solve this problem are better at it than those that aren't. So for example, if, if you have a, you know, query where it's like an index and it's a year worth of data and you want to pull a minute out and dump it in DRAM somewhere else and analyze it there, like, you know, we can do that too, but you know, it, 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 it's not, it's, there's a lot of other alternatives for that, you know, for the kinds of queries, you know, I've been describing, which is truly hyperscale, like that query is going to look at half a billion or, a you know, half a trillion or you know trillions of records it's a complex thing it's not just pulling something out of an index it could be an ad, ad hoc query it could be a join account distinct something where just like the way that the database the relational algebra math works is you're gonna have to look at a trillion things and you're gonna do that let's say thousands of times a day for that kind of analysis which is what we focus on the bigger the the bigger the query gets bigger meaning the more records it has to analyze the bigger the gap will be in, in OSINT's performance compared to alternatives. So for example, we ran some Snowflake benchmarks the other day, and this wasn't even hyper, super hyperscale. It was just kind of you know, looking at hundreds of billions of records. Um, we were performing at one, at, at one seventh the cost, but five times the performance. And the, the actual truth is to even just to run that benchmark, we spent like you know, tens of thousands of dollars on Snowflake to run it. Um, so we didn't run like an enormous one, um, but we would expect that as the, the queries get bigger, you know, now you get to trillions or tens of trillions of records, that gap will widen even more. So instead of like 35 times the price performance, you could see, you know, hundreds times, you know, the price performance if you really were hitting 10 trillion things in a query. Yeah, I find it interesting that you use Snowflake as a comparison I mean, I don't know um, 
what the competitive landscape looks like for OSEAN's um, approach here. Um, but clearly Snowflake uh, is growing um, and getting a lot of mind share. Um, do, you, do you solve some of the same kinds of problems or serve some of the same kinds of customers? Sometimes, they're probably not our biggest, they're not our biggest competitive alternative that we see. Um, one of the reasons we use them in that benchmark is we, we could acquire it, you know, just one-time query, even though it's expensive. Um, whereas other, other systems, it's harder for us to get our hands on to, to benchmark, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but we, we generally see what, what you see, the biggest uh, storage of analyzed data is still in some kind of Hadoop-based system. You know, the performance is, you know, not even close to what any modern alternative could do. But you know, when you when you ask like where are the exabytes of, of data that are is analyzed typically in Hadoop? Um, you know, so we see a lot of that out there. You know, we'll see um, you know um, you know other alternatives like you know elastic we, we run into you know sometimes um, in others. But uh, generally what we're what we're seeing is there's just not another it's kind of like, you know, databases are like vehicles, you know, the best dump truck in the world is not a good, you know, performance sedan, you know, like they're good at what they're good at, you know, so there's, you know, graph databases and there's end memory databases and there's, uh, you know, like uh, elastic, you know, elastic meaning, you know, databases where you separate compute and storage, it's really good for an elastic workload. Mm -hmm. um, so those things are great at what they're great at. We haven't seen anyone else all in on this architecture um, where, you know, like the, with the, within the constraints we, you know, we've identified, you know, you, you know, we haven't seen anybody else designing specifically for it. Yeah. Now it sounds like, uh, you know, we're talking about, um, kind of high-end use cases here, hyperscale uh, type workloads. So is it the case that Oceant is uh, first and foremost uh, technology that your customers use in their own data centers? And uh, part two to that question is like, where, like where does Oceant fit into the cloud model? Yeah, that's a really good question because what we're seeing are, um, what we see in the hyperscale world is different than I think what the kind of mid-market is, is, is focused on. You know, mid-market and below, for sure, that makes sense to be in, in, in a cloud environment most all the time. There'll be some exceptions to that, you know, where data for, you know, custody or legal reasons can't leave the building. Um, but most of the time, you know, the, the benefits of that elastic ability and the flexibility is worth it. It's really only at hyperscale where you're, your workload pretty much takes over a whole cluster that all the benefits of being in a cloud fall away. It actually ends up being typically less expensive to do either managed service or on-prem. Oceant is agnostic. We support all models. So our software will run on-prem. Our software will deliver it as a managed service. We're, we're basically, we operate a cluster for the customer that's dedicated uh, mm -hmm. to that use. Uh, and we, we can also run in, in public clouds. Uh, and then the final one was we also have a hybrid version where a hybrid deployment model where we'll put some proxy servers in a public cloud, but then run 
the back end is a, is a uh, managed service. So it'll, you know, looks like it's in your cloud, but from a cost point of view, and, a, and you'll get a little performance gain. Um, it'll, it'll give you some improvements there as a hybrid cloud. So we see all, all those. Generally in the hyperscale market, um, it's, it is and will remain about 50% on-prem and about 50% cloud is, is how we see it playing out. Um, like I said, there's, there's certain of these gigantic markets where they, they have to be on-prem, you know, they'll stay on-prem, and then there's others where they're going to the, to the cloud. So we see about 50-50 mix. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Chris, as we kind of uh, move towards the, um, the latter part of this conversation, I have a couple things I want to touch on here. One is to understand the availability of the OSEANT um, uh, platform and solution, like where are you uh, in, uh, in kind of availability? And then secondly, we're heading into 2022, maybe give us a look ahead what, what we should be watching for in the year ahead. So yeah. why don't we start in terms of early adopters and product availability? Well, generally, OSEANT is, a, is also similar to, to CleverSafe in that because we are only focusing on about 500 potential customers, the way we market is to just contact them directly. We, we know who the organizations are that have this much data and they have these kind of business requirements. So we don't really rely on a lot of external marketing as a way of people learning about us. We, we, we you know, so we... And also we found that these kinds of organizations, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's a, there's confidentiality or classified issues, you know, not only with government organizations, but often private technology companies would, would, would like to keep it private. You know, they may be using OCN as the back end, and that's fine. We, we don't, you know, um, we don't have to disclose that. So we generally operate behind the scenes um, as a company. Uh, as we did at CleverSafe. Um, mm -hmm. So where we are though, is to build something like this takes about 250 person years of very expensive engineering to get a, a version one out the door. So we've done that. Last year was the year of the pilot where we had a bunch of big pilot pilots underway. And then this year was the year we, we did our initial deployments. Um, so that that's, so from an availability point of view, it, it, it became available earlier this year. Um, we're going to announce it um, sometime next year, you know. So, uh, unlike again, like a more of a consumer-facing business where you would announce what you do and you know, and then get customers, we get customers first and then we announce it. So we, so we expect to see next year. We're we're gearing up to announce it. Um, you know, a little provide a little more detail about what we do, but we're still going to be generally respectful of our customers' desires to. Um, keep those details of who's using it and how confidential. Sure, sure. That makes sense. All right. And I think you uh, kind of answered my um, second question there, which was the look ahead to next year, yeah. which is um, talking more openly about the company and its technology. Um, and, um, you know, Chris, by next year, we'll, once again, companies will have probably 10x as much data as they had, you know, 12 or 24 months ago, um, depending on which company you're talking about. Um, what is, I guess, uh, kind of just uh, wrapping things up here, what is your sense of, um, of the need, um, the growing need for a solution like this um, more broadly among, among businesses? 
Well, one thing we're also seeing with the cloudification of the market is that smaller scale data analysis more and more lands in some kind of cloud. That, that can be an internal cloud where you know, a large organization has set up you know, uh, a database, you know, data analysis as a service and all these different applications which previously would have been different database systems are now consolidated into one as an internal cloud. I mean, that's what cloud providers do is they take the demand that previously, you know, 20 years ago, if you went to your dentist's office and looked in the basement, there probably was a server sitting down there, you know, running their record system for all their patients. Now, for sure, that's sitting in a cloud somewhere. So all the, you know, the million different systems that are 10 million different systems that used to, you know, be distributed all over now live in this one big cloud system. So what we're seeing, but the cloud systems themselves are databases as well, which are targets for us, you know, we can make internal clouds that serve 6,000 different customers, you know, internal customers, or, you know, we can sell a, a backend system to a cloud provider. Um, but generally, the effect of all that is physically, there used to be, you know, hundreds of millions of different, you know, databases running on different systems, and more and more, they're getting consolidated into these massive internal cloud, private cloud and external cloud systems. So the the absolute number of database physically physical database systems is actually decreasing a lot. And then their scale is accelerating. So not only is there more data being analyzed in the world, it's being analyzed on a smaller number of systems. So generally what that means is over time, this trillion scale, this hyperscale that we've been talking about is in the process of moving from this niche high-end world that you know only a hundred different organizations use to something that just becomes the dominant platforms on which data is analyzed is these massive hyperscale systems. It may appear to you as a user that you're, you've got this little database with all the, you know, the people that you interact with, but physically, you know, that's a, that's a single application on this massive, you know, internal database cloud, either private or public. So what we see is the majority over time of data analysis is going to occur on these hyperscale systems. So hyperscale for the rest of the world, I guess. Um, yeah, it won't appear that way. It'll appear yeah. to them like, oh, I've got my little, you know, 10 gigabytes of data I'm analyzing, but physically the back end of that is going to be some hyperscale system that's got, you know, a million different, you know, gigabyte scale or even terabyte scale systems. Well, Chris, um, that uh, wraps things up here. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I started off our conversation by pointing out that we crossed paths 15 years ago. I certainly hope that we don't uh, take that long to talk again. Um, and you know, we'll be watching OSEAN closely. And um, in the year ahead, um, let's touch base again. Uh, wishing you the best of luck. Yeah, great to connect. And I'm looking forward to these uh, conversations in the future as well. Yeah, thank you. So that's it for this episode of the Cloud Database Report podcast. I'd like to thank my guest. Chris Gladwin, um, the CEO of Oscient. Um, and um, you can find this podcast on all of the major podcast channels. So, and also on the Acceleration Economy website and our Dev Data Revolution channel. So thank you everyone. I look forward to talking to you again soon.